Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Charlotte Bond. And I'm Lucy Hansom. There's more to mastering writing than just sentences, plots and character. Writers must also think about the genre they are writing in, the audience they are writing for, and the medium their final piece will be in. It's no wonder that many authors tend to stick to one main area, a certain genre, for instance. A few years ago, in an interview, Victoria Schwab talked about her various writing streams under different names and with different publishers. She felt that it was necessary for the stability of her career as a writer to have a variety of places where money was coming from. If her YA books started to slump, she would still have her adult novels. After all, writing is a career. But how do writers conquer such disparate projects and skill sets? We thought we'd ask one. So we are very, very honoured to have with us today an author who has published over 20 books, over multiple genres, as well as working for television. She's written original works and for franchises. You know, she's done it all. So welcome, Sarah Pimbra, and thank you very, very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm a jack of all trades and a master of none. Uh. <laughs> jack of all genres. <laughs> We think you're a master of many. So. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so for those of our listeners who don't know your work, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, I am Sarah Pimbra. Um, probably at the moment when people say, I've read your book, they are meaning Behind Your Eyes, which was a, a sort of supernatural psychological thriller. Um, but I've written various horror, fantasy, sci-fi, historical, YA, dystopian, crime, uh, and some TV stuff as well. So yeah, my last book was, I think, my 26th book. I think I've just handed in my 26th. Yeah, 26th or 27th. Yeah. Okay, that's You know you've written impressive. a lot of books when you can't remember. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> So, I mean, you've, you've written original novels, novels of franchises, novellas, short stories, screenplays. I mean, how do you just, like, do you sit there and go, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write a novel next? Or, you know, I feel like doing a short story. And how do you switch them up? Do you have several different kinds of things happening at once? Or, like, how does that work? Um, I, I can quite honestly say hand on heart I never sit down and think I feel like writing a short story I I absolutely loathe writing short stories which is why I don't do them very often you know I only do them if someone really bullies me into it um it has to be someone I really know and like and I've kind of you know want to do something for them but in the main I'm a novelist primarily novelist and screenwriter um these days I don't sit down and think oh I think I'll do this next <laughs> you know like the contract dictates what I'm doing next. so I mean, at the moment to put it into sort of context uh, I'm just editing the book that comes out in February I'm about to start I'm plotting the next novel I'm working on a um, original tv series of the production company here uh, I just did a pitch call with LA last night to adapt somebody else's book for television over there I've got a meeting next week about coming in on another tv project um, and then there's an original TV project I want to write and an idea for a ghost novella that I want to write because now if I write horror, um, it tends to be just for sort of little little side projects, obviously not for my main novels. Um, but as a rule, you know, when you're starting out, it's, it's such a double-edged sword, this career, because when you're starting out, you have so much more freedom with what you want to write, you know, because you're not tied necessarily to a particular publisher. You're not, you know, they're not, 
embedded financially in you and therefore you have to you know build a brand as it were um so when I started out you know I could do lots more things but now it's uh, you know I'm much more pigeonholed is the wrong word but I'm, I'm doing much more of one kind of thing if you know what I mean so obviously you don't necessarily sit down and you know think what you're gonna write in that respect but what about writing for different audiences like um adult or young adult do you have a different mindset for that is that part of the contract and dictates when you have to do it or do you um, just throw a young adult in when you feel like it uh I used to definitely um now not so much because I just don't have the time but the mindset I, the stories I think should be as complex as an adult novel, you know, because I think with young, young adult is such a new concept that because I'm so flipping old, when I was growing up, you went from like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory to Shirley Conran's Lace or Wilbur Smith or James Herbert or Stephen King. So, it, you know, there was no young adult per se category. So I kind of think, well, when I write a young adult book, the only difference I have with the approach is that the character, the teenage characters are in the lead. I think what's important to remember is that teenagers feel everything a hundred times more than adults do. Cause nine times out of 10, it's the first time they've had that situation, you know, or, you know, they see things much more in black and white because they haven't made as many fuck ups in their life as, as you have as an adult. So you don't have the gray area. So my only, my only thing I try and stick with is that, they can the characters can be as complex and the stories can be as complex, but um, teenagers are really judgmental and teenage girls are quite psychopathic and those are the two things I keep in my head if I'm writing a YA. But I don't. Um, I'm not a great one for message in YA. You know, like I see a lot of YA and I'm sure it's valid and people need it. But I, I, you know, when I was a kid, I wanted to read James Herbert and I wanted to read you know, Wilbur Smith, I wanted a great cracking story or a good murder or something really dark happening. So if I write a YA, I just try and write the kind of book that I would have wanted to read as a teenager <laughs> rather than, oh, I think young people really need to understand about this. <laughs> or, you know, because I think now nah, that's what school's for. You know. <laughs> it's a pretty good rule of thumb, actually, for most writing, you know, write yeah. what you want to read. Yeah, although weirdly, you know, uh, I know we were talking before we started sort of taping, but I don't read a lot of historical fiction. And yeah, I you know I've written two historical novels, so that's the only rule of mine that I've kind of broken. Uh, but I would watch that as a TV series, Mayhem and Murder. I'd watch it. You know, <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily read it, but I'd watch it. Um, I think um, YA and adult is not such a big difference as something like um, fantasy and crime. You know, like writing YA and an adult, you're literally just looking at a twenty thousand word difference. But I don't. I mean, like I was going to write a YA in this round of books but we've changed it to an adult because we just think we've got a momentum going you know it'd be silly to take a year out and write a YA book when you know we should be pushing the momentum of an adult and you know to be honest I just like writing stories so I'm not so precious about what kind you know what whether I'm writing for young adults or adults well, exactly. And if you're dealing with the same topics and not really dumbing it down that much, which you don't seem to do, then like you say, it's just a matter of word count, really. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But I mean, you've put your name to crime, to thrillers, to Victorian crime thrillers, <laughs> straight horror, dark fairy tales as well. I mustn't forget that all the way back. I um, would they, love those fairy tales. <laughs> very great. Um, all under the name of, of Sarah Pembroke. Yet yeah. you chose to write as Sarah Silverman for the YA stuff. So, I mean, what prompted you to distinguish those books? And why didn't you include The Death House and 13 Minutes in them, which arguably could be? Well, you see, this is where it comes down to the business 
in that I when I wrote it was Sarah I was writing um Sarah Silverwood books which were kind of YA but they were kind of 12 plus you know slightly old you know somewhere between 12 and 14 so not quite YA but um older than uh, you know older than children as it were um I was also writing the Dogface Gods trilogy and both were for Galantz and it was when Joe Fletcher was there and she was worried that uh if we wrote I don't know why but the people who, if kids read the double-edged sword they might walk into a bookshop and pick up a matter of blood because it had the same name on it even though one was adult and one was for children and matter of blood had you know it was dystopian crime fiction the detective took a lot of drugs and killed people and you know so they said oh no we need a different name so they it was actually joe fletcher who decided that the nowhere chronicles would come out under sarah silverwood and then she obviously left and set up joe fletcher books um and it it didn't work because you know nobody picked him up no one knew who i was (laughs) it was just a sort of you know strange new name um and recently i think galantz redid them with my name on them and um, so when, obviously, when I did The Death House in 13 Minutes, I did them for Gillian Redfern at Glance. So they came out under the same name because we, you know, realised that having two separate names was silly and hadn't just hadn't worked. So, yeah, that was that was nothing to do with me. <laughs> so no, no active choice on your part then? No, and actually, had I been more experienced writer at the time, professionally experienced, I would have probably put my foot down. You know, or said at least keep my surname and do it with initials. Or you know how people do, so it's still yeah. Uh, it could have been Sarah X Pimbra or something. Yeah, even Sarah J Pimbra because you know I'm really boring with Sarah J. <laughs> <laughs> like, but it was yeah, it was just um, it was not the wisest move, and which is a shame because I actually love that. You know, and I'm not one of those people who often says like I love my story. You know, some writers are really positive about all their work, and I'm really not like that. But it's the one story that I will enthuse about. I really love that trilogy, you know, but nobody read it. So <laughs> sort of, you know, it was a lesson learned. Well, it is true. I mean, I, you go, to, I go to my library to see what your latest book is and all of them there, there's like three or four copies of behind her eyes and cross her heart and things. And you oh, look up your so- library. <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> oh no. I mean, across the, across the County. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I, I tried to get some YA stuff to read it, and they, I think they had one copy of the second book, and I'm like, yeah, that's not very helpful. That's not useful. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy, you know. Um, but these things, you kind of hope one day if you have that kind of Paula Hawkins moment when you sell millions and millions and millions of books, then hopefully you can, you know, get people to look back at those old books. But I'm not sure that it actually works that way. But hey-ho, I'm still glad I wrote it. I mean, from the from the outside, it does seem like you have avoided to be, you know, managed to be pigeonholed because we talk about this quite a few, you know, quite often, especially it happens to female writing. Personally speaking from experience, really, it is it's very easy to be pigeonholed um, mm. as, a, as a young female writer, um, particularly, you know, in my experience, I found that I now can't break out of fantasy because that's what I've been kind of labelled as. Yeah. So, at any point in your career, did you feel pigeonholed or that they that you felt that you were being kind of pushed down a particular path and that you, you know, something that you didn't want to go down? Or, or do you feel that now? Or do you feel uh, like, you know, it was never really a problem? Well, it's um, when I was writing the horrors way back at the start for the Americans, that got a little bit, you know, I was trying to do more different things with my outlines and they were saying, no, no, it needs to be straight horror. It needs to be straight horror. And that was annoying me. I didn't get it so much at Galantz and 
I mean, Joe Fletcher books are slightly different because I only wrote a couple of books for them. So, you know, but with Glance, they were pretty easy. Like 13 Minutes is not a fantasy novel, which is obviously what Glance's imprint is. But they let me get away with writing crime YA, you know. But um, I suffered in reverse in some ways because it was too, I did too many genres and too many different things. So it was really hard um, to build a brand. Yeah, that's you know? very interesting. Yeah. And people would say to me, oh, I really, you know, which of your books should I read? Whereas, if, so if you're, I don't know, like if all your novels have been, let's say you're Mark Billingham and all your novels have been crime novels. So you know this person likes crime and they say, which of your books should I start with? You're going to pick the one you think is the best, you know? So Mark might say, oh, the most recent one or this one or that one. But he knows they're a crime reader. They're going to read any of those books and, and hopefully like it. Whereas with mine, if people say, you know, which one should I start with? I'm like, well, I don't know. <laughs> you know, there's very... What do you like? <laughs> and so it was, it was very difficult looking back, you know, for anyone to build that as a brand. But then when I am... Um, moved to Harper and I mean I think they were originally going to publish me under the Voyager imprint um but then Behind Her Eyes came out so commercial and so thriller that they they decided to publish it on the, the main list but now obviously you know like now when I go anywhere people say I've read your book I know they mean either Behind Her Eyes or Cross Her Heart and if someone says something like oh no but I read The Death House I'd be like oh wow because obviously it's those two books so you know now I'm I am a thriller writer a lot of people don't even realize I'd written all these books before then because sales wise that's you know like the, the differential between the quantity of those two books that have sold versus all my other books mm -hmm. you know it's you know so so now I guess you know like my next three books will be thrillers you know because that's what you can't get paid a huge amount of money by a publisher and then you know so actually I think I'm gonna write a horror novel <laughs> Next, I'd be like, no, I don't think you are. You know, it says in my contract, psychological thrillers. So, you know, I think, but I do think if you, depends how you choose to look at it. If your publisher is behind you, then it should be about building a brand rather than pigeonholing, if you know what I mean. Yeah. yeah. And and I think, I think, I mean, I heard a story about, uh, you know, as, as gossip goes in the industry, a really, really successful novelist who'd had this massive book and someone said, oh, but they want to be, at heart, they want to be a literary novelist. And I was like, well, if they've made all the money, then they can be a literary novelist. They just have to accept that their book sales are going to go down to about 2,000 per book rather than a million per book. You know, mm -hmm. like that's, that, you know, I think once you've made your money, you can write whatever you want, whenever you want. You were talking a bit about like writing to spec and, you know, being kind of driven by where the money is so not pulling yourself out for a YA since the other stuff was doing well I mean how does that, that fit with publisher's decision actually because okay. they a YA and they said actually let's make it an adult but how does that fit with you as a creative person I mean I, I assume maybe incorrectly that you know many writers go into the you know writing books because they like creating they like telling stories but you mm -hmm. kind of listen to the voice of whatever you're wanting to tell at the time how does that fit in with writing to spec, writing very specific books because that's what people are buying? Well, I think the thing is, I, I like telling stories and I like telling stories with a mystery. Um, so, you know, Behind Her Eyes is very different to Cross Her Heart. They're both thrillers. Cross Her Heart is very different to the one that's coming out next year, which is maybe slightly more similar to Behind Her Eyes, but still very different. But they're all psychological thrillers. 
if I, you know, I could take that YA idea and write it for TV and try and sell that to a TV company. So it's, you know, for me, I'm just, I just like making up stories and I, and I really enjoy writing the thrillers. You know, some, there are days when I sometimes think, oh, you know, I miss writing something weird, but then I'll just write a TV pitch and try and sell that with weirding because I think it sells better on TV than it does necessarily in fiction for me anyway, for me personally. Um, but I've had this conversation with people before and they mistake being commercial for having sold out. But I think I'm like, you know, those sticks of rock, <laughs> you know, when you cut it in half and it says bright and pier or something, if you cut me in half, it would just say commercial. You know, <laughs> that is, you know, in my heart, the kind of writing that I do. So whether it's, you know, like, yeah, I, I had an idea for a YA book, but I also had an idea for an adult book. So it's like, well, I'll write the adult one then, you know, and if I, if I don't write the YA one, there's, I've had plenty of things that I've never got around to writing, you know, I'm not, you know, I don't, I take my work very seriously. Um, and I work very hard, but I'm not at all, um, precocious about it. You know, I don't, I don't believe that what I'm doing is creating art. I believe I'm creating entertainment, you know, and I think it's a much maligned thing to, yeah. to people put mm -hmm. down entertainment, but actually there's nothing better for your mental health than when you sit on the sofa and lit, you know, like when you get one of those books and you literally sink into it mm -hmm. and you're listening to it, which doesn't actually happen very often, but you can sit down. I mean, like I read, and it doesn't have to be a deep piece of work, but I read um, Samantha Dowling's My Lovely Wife when I got the proof for it through ages ago. And you know, you think, oh, I'll try this one. Because, you know, I get quite a lot of proofs. And I'm just like, oh, I'll give this one a go. And I thought, oh, it sounds quite generic or whatever. I literally did not put that down until I finished it. It was entertaining. It was kind of like Dexter meets Gone Girl. You know, it was dark. It was funny. And I was totally entertained. And it made me feel really good. So, you know, there are some people out there who want to create great literature. And, you know, there are some people out there that, you know, want to create sort of the weird and wacky. And, you know, but I am that kind of commercial. Just I just want to entertain people. I don't you know, think maybe there's anything wrong with, like, saying that you want someone to sit there and not put your book down yeah, for a whole exactly. evening, you know. Exactly. <laughs> Um, but so yeah so it doesn't it's not like I go into some creative funk because someone says I mean if I'd half written the YA that would have been a different story I'd be like really you know I've half written this book now uh, but as I hadn't actually started it and hadn't even really plotted it out apart from a two-page outline you know it was neither here nor there really whether I wrote that or whether I wrote a different book no. Well, I wanted to ask about you saying, Ellie, about writing mystery and talking about Cross a Heart and Behind Her Eyes. Um, we're recording this just, what, a week or so after it was revealed that Cross Her Heart has become a finalist for the Locus Awards in the horror category. <laughs> and obviously be Behind Her Eyes was one of the books I read when I was a juror for the BFS Horror Awards last year. Did that um, on the shortlist? It did, didn't it? It did, yes. Yeah. I remember reading it. Um, uh, but I wondered... Where is the dividing line between horror and thriller? Do you think there has to be a, super a supernatural element to it? Because no, uh, they've I got a lot in common. I don't think there should be a supernatural element necessarily. I mean, I think Silence of the Lambs, for example, is a horror novel and not a crime novel uh, because I think the overriding sensation when you're reading it is fear and that kind of ugh and ooh. Whereas with a thriller, it's much more of a what's going on, who done it, got to turn the page, got to turn the page. 
I mean, I mean, I'm really flattered and I love those people at Locus. You know, they're lovely people. But, and I, you know, I feel bad because I didn't, I haven't really pimped the fact that the book's on there. I think I put something on Facebook and that was it. Because I do feel a bit embarrassed because there may be some horrific scenes in that book, but it's not a horror novel. You know, it's a thriller. It's, it's a crime thriller to me anyway. That's what I wrote. I don't think it is, you know, I think... Um, I think uh, mayhem is more of a horror than a crime novel. Although, yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that because there's definite elements. Having read both books, there are very definite horror elements within um, your Murder and Mayhem series. There's, there's yeah. no denying that's horror. Yeah, and I was thinking about it, and I suppose behind her eyes, because behind of, her, it could they could sneak it on. Yeah, because it has some weird. But yeah, it's not a horror novel. It's a thriller. You know, it's a, it is a thriller. But I kind of get, you know, I, you know, for me, it was nice. It's like my people, you know, like <laughs> sort of thing. But I think with this one, I was a bit, it was a bit left field. And I'm obviously I'm really flattered. And I, I, if it had been me, if I'd been putting that shortlist together, I'd have, there'd have been some arguments because however much I liked that book, I wouldn't have called it a horror novel. When I was reading for the BFS Awards last year and um, Behind Her Eyes was on, and I'd already read it and I'd, I'd enjoyed it. And I came to the same conclusion, it's not really a horror novel yeah. <laughs> and then I had to reread it because of you know I thought well it's only fair because it's on the the awards shortlist yeah. and do you know what knowing what the twist was at the end oh my god was that book more sinister when I read it and yeah. I, was, I, I went the first time you read it it's a thriller novel the second time you read it it is a horror novel and well, so many little things were just cropped up yeah it was that you know there are, it is a marmite book and it is a love or hate book but and I can live with that because it was always gonna be a divider but what I hate is when people say, you know, someone on Amazon or something will say, well, she obviously just didn't know how to end the book. So she threw that ending on <laughs> there from page one. It is. It is so there. true. And the guy who's done the adaptation, uh, he emailed me about, God, it must be about two months ago now when he was doing sort of the scripts. And he just said, the more I have to delve into this book, the more I realize how clever you were setting it all up. He said, because there didn't so much of it he didn't see on first read. Yeah. You know, by really. read four, he's like, oh, that was a clue as well. And that was a clue as well. So I was pretty, pro it, you know, when I, when I gave the, when we did the deal and Natasha Barden said to me, it's going to be quite a tricky book to write. And I was like, no, it's not. Don't be so ridiculous. And then when I started writing it, especially, you know, one of the characters, I was like, oh, actually, this is, you know, because you can't lie. No. You know, but at the same time, it's like, how do you tell the truth while it all means something other than what you're saying? So it was, you know, it was a certainly an interesting learning curve. But uh, yeah, I was quite pleased with it. But yeah, I think that one I could see that could be interpreted as a horror novel. But across the heart, I thought, oh, there's some unpleasant stuff in it, but it ain't horror. But you know, what do I know? I'll take the award. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you've got thrillers and you've got like horror and even so i think your your fairy tale stuff still has definitely elements of, of darkness in there you, yeah you you clearly like to to go into the darkness i mean what is it that attracts you to that and, and why do you think that readers really love to read thrillers and horror books it's tricky isn't it i mean i do well i remember i've read it like when i read eleanor oliphant it's completely fine i thought god i'd love to write a feel-good book and then i started trying to jot some ideas down and they all went to dark places 
they all you know like within two paragraphs people were dying and I thought I'm not designed <laughs> to write those, those feel-good novels um I've always liked you know when I was a kid I never slept until my parents sent me to boarding school and um, my mum used to think I was just a bit hyper and I would wake up about 85 times a night and ask her what was for lunch the next morning and that kind of stuff you know but literally I was a petrified of the dark I was petrified of and you know like you know nights were just a very very long time for me you know like you know if there was something under the bed or that you know just okay. everything about the night scared me like this whole other world I've always been a very vivid dreamer so and I think that so that's obviously fed into you know and I'm actually I'm actually quite a miserable person underneath this bubbly exterior but you know I'm you know I can dwell on the darkest points in life too much and that kind of thing but I, I think people with with horror and thrillers especially you know or horror and crime novels maybe more than thrillers because thrillers don't really scare you you know they by the title should thrill you but crime novels can um I think it's a containable way of ex- exploring our own fears and especially when they say that horror and crime do really well when society's in a bad place because people are scared so they want to read about people having a worse time than they are you know, so like, um, if you think back to the 80s, which seemed to be, it's an awful way to put it, the boom of the serial killer, you know, we had uh, Peter Sutcliffe over here, they had, you know, Bundy or whatever over in America, you know, we had these very sort of high profile serial killers. And there was a real boom on serial killer novels, I think, that came out of that, because it was containable, you could read about the fear, you could read about, you know, this terrible things happening, but at the end, the baddie gets got you know, or the ghost gets yeah. laid to rest, or the monster is killed. Um, so I think it's a way of exploring our own fears um, without actually having to go through it. I mean, horror, horror films are slightly different because they really are fun. You know, there's something fun about they They make you laugh because it's more of a jolt, you know, than, a, than maybe a horror novel is. But, yeah, I think, um, I mean, not everyone. I mean, a lot of people like to read chick lit and stuff but that just to me that is a horror novel you know <laughs> you know because you know, I just don't but I mean I I, I, I don't want to sit and read about romance you know I'd rather read about something a bit grittier and stuff but I think that's you know that probably says something more bad about me as a person I don't mind a bit of romance within a book but you know I, I, I'm not sort of a, a romance novel reader there's something appealing about awful things happening to people that we like to read about I think maybe it gets us in the mindset of you know killers and stuff I don't know I don't know but crime seems to boom go to crime conventions that audiences and they're always audiences are nearly always over 50 it's quite I did notice that when I went to the Harrogate Crime Festival yeah yeah there's a lot of old yeah. there reading about really bad things happening to people although in fairness it might just be Harrogate I suppose although have you been to other crime conventions um yeah uh crime fest uh, bloody Scotland yeah they they do tend to be an older crowd and that may just be that actually fewer young people are reading so much it may just be that but definitely um you know you you know you can you can see a sea of kind of gray hair at Harrogate which is great it doesn't you know it doesn't bother me what age people's readers are but it's definitely um you know people always think sweet little old ladies but sweet little old ladies are just old women you know <laughs> they're the same as you and me just in older bodies so but there's definitely a, a 
maybe they came up through the boom of crime, you know, all those sort of series fictions like Ian Rankin and stuff. So now they're kind of... They worked their way through Agatha Christie and now need yeah, something exactly. else. <laughs> More <Yeah>. hardcore. <laughs> maybe it's just because the time when they're at home, ITB is just showing constant crime dramas like Midsommar yeah. Murder and Father Brown, and that's all they have to watch, so that's all they read. People love it, though, don't they? It's I do like a bit of Midsummer. Yeah, you know, I don't. If there's a Columbo on on a Sunday afternoon, I'm there. <laughs> oh, I always loved the way he. It was so novel for me when I was a kid to watch when you knew who the murderer yeah. was and watch him work it out. That was so amazing. I mean, it's just it's old hat now, but at the time, but it was, it was, it was being it, blown it was away. So, yeah, and all those beautiful LA houses. Yeah, there were always rich people in LA with beautiful sort of Spanish houses. <laughs> But talking about like crime on TV, you've written uh, an episode of New Tricks. Yeah, I see. Yeah. I I love that show, but again, I I kind of I started watching it with my mum. So, yeah. do you know what? It was the number one rated show on the BBC, and people would always go, "Oh, New Tricks, it's so middle aged." But it, everyone watched it. It was one of those shows that everyone watched. You know, so yeah. But that was a baptism of fire into TV writing. I remember seeing it on Facebook when you were posting about um, being on New Tricks and literally everybody was on your time like, oh my God, it's your name on the TV. This is so I know. Cool. Everybody tuned in to watch it. And I mean, that was on top of all the people who already tuned into New Tricks anyway, who already loved it. It was like, you know, I think it's something like 7 million people uh, watched it. Like, because that's just what the average viewing figures were. And you kind of think, flip me, you'd have to sell a lot of books to get that many people to read a book, you know? But yeah, it was it was interesting, and it was um, I'm a much better TV writer now than I was then. But it was certainly a, you know, it was my first TV writing job, and it was such a baptism of fire because, you know, that machine is rolling, and it's going to start filming on a certain date, and you have to be ready, you know. So it was um, it was certainly an experience, but it taught me a massive amount. Mm. I mean, I did a kind of like a module on screenwriting at university mm. and I, I was the first and last module I ever did on screenwriting because I just did not gel with it at all I think it's really different a completely different discipline to novel yeah, writing yeah. I mean what how do you um how do you go about that because it's, it's dialogue you know and and you yeah. don't have any of that you know there's no exposition there's no scene setting you have to somehow convey it through well, no, dialogue a scene setting you know you've got your action a little bit of description and it's the biggest sort of thing when people start screenwriting. Like a friend of mine who I actually bumped into someone I hadn't seen for years at a funeral recently, and he's just sent me his. Uh, he had he did he was in the BBC Writers Room and you know he got quite far in it. He wrote this three parter and he sent it over to me. And on the first page, I could just see it's like so much description, you know. And I thought it's such a typical. Everyone does it when they first start writing screenplays. They write it almost like a novel, like they've got to describe mm. everything. And actually, no, you have to. Every scene has to push forward. Your dialogue should often be saying the exact opposite of what it means. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> because nobody tells the truth. No. Ever. You know, like everyone has, everyone's trying to politely say something else. <laughs> Nearly always, you know. You know, they never go into a room and go, why aren't you speaking to me? Da, 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 unless it's really you hit the big argument. But, you know, nine times out of ten, most people talk around a thing rather than actually mm. talk about a thing. You know, it is very different. Uh, I mean, a structure is everything in screenplay in a way that it isn't so much with novels. I mean, when I did New Tricks, I remember the producer saying to me, it's much harder discipline than writing a book. And I was like, how dare you? And actually, it was bang on. It is a much harder discipline because 
you've only got so that an hour of tv so you know i've just this finished the script i've got to hand in tomorrow and it's 57 pages you know which probably should get down to about 53 for an itv hour you know because an itv hour is 47 minutes a bbc hour is 57 minutes you know but you can't go over you have to hit those minutes you have to put your ad breaks in you have to you know so you've got to have little hooks throughout you know, but when my first draft of my new tricks episode, where in which I was trying to fit a whole novel's worth of story, my first draft I think was something like ninety-one pages, which shows how naive I was at the time. And I'd sold films by then, you know, not got made, but I'd sold film scripts. And now I'm like, yeah, much better because I can do an hour of television in fifty-six pages. You know, <laughs> definitely got my my pace sorted but it is yeah it's a very different skill set but I like it because it's like a puzzle it's all about taking out you know like you write your first draft and then you go back and you take stuff out like with from, with me if I write a novel my first draft is pretty much my draft you know because I'm, I'm a big planner so I hand the novel in but I've said so I'm just on my second round of notes for the next book and then we're pretty much at copy edit stage you know, just little tidying up and mm -hmm. things. So that's, you know, given that that's for an American and a UK publisher, so they've both got notes, that's not bad going. With a screenplay, pretty much for anybody I know, your first draft is your get everything wrong draft, you know? And then mm -hmm. your second draft, you start to make it right. Uh, but it's, it's different, you know, to just have so many more people involved, you know, because if a producer's paid you to do it, then they've got, you know, so we'll have maybe three different production companies that are involved in a thing, and so they all have notes. And then there's about budget. We can't afford that, so change that. You know, so it's a very different. It's you know that the one thing that screenwriting will help you with is taking notes on a novel, mm -hmm. because the notes you get on a novel are never going to be as extreme as the notes you get on a screenplay. At a technical level, do you feel like screenwriting has helped you refine the way you write novels? Like sure, it's definitely helped my dialogue. Um, I mean, I am in my novels. I'm invariably slow on the first third. That's always I always have to tighten that up. Um, um that's exactly the same as me. <laughs> I think most people are because you're setting you're feeling up. it out, you know. Yeah. Um, but it has made me think. What is this chapter doing? Where you know, and I what what it has actually. I really think about the structure of my novels now. Whereas I used to always concentrate on the plot more. Now I get my plot roughly sorted out and then I'm like, okay, how are we going to do this? When are the reveals going to come? At what point? You know, so I'm really very structure aware. And that comes from doing screenplays, I think. We talked about doing novels and we've talked mm -hmm. about writing for the screen but what about writing for franchises like you did your Torchwood novels mm. do you approach the writing process very differently is it quite similar to script or to novels or how do you go about that uh, well I've only done those two and I, th I actually did a novella for them as well I think um, and that was what I did was I watched the entire series is whatever series back to back um <laughs> And actually not dissimilar to when doing new tricks. I watched a lot to get the speech patterns, to get how, you know, the kind of language they used, the kind of, the way the characters were, what their most likely behaviours were, you know, that kind of thing. So I did sort of study the scripts, uh, study the, the TV. It wasn't that dissimilar to write in a normal novel in that, you know, you send your picture and they like it. And then 
you know, I just kind of wrote the novel, but I'd watched the the two series of Torchwood sort of back to back. So they were really embedded in my head. And once you start writing, they just become your characters. They become, they just feel like any other of your own characters. So I do forget that I didn't actually invent Torchwood. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it was, it was interesting. And it probably did help for when I went into new tricks because it was, you were writing somebody else's characters voices, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I like the idea of just watching back-to-back Barrowman and saying it's research. <laughs> you know, the thing is, as well, I'd never even seen it when they asked me if I'd do it. And I wanted to quit my job, or at least take six months out. And I knew it paid quite a good flat fee, and it was 50000 words. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mark Morris asked me, and I was like, yeah, yeah. And I said, just tell them I love the show. Tell them I love the show, and I'll, I'll send some pictures in. And I had to run to my friend. I was like, I need all the tortured episodes. Get them to me on a disc now. <laughs> <laughs> And so, you know, but actually I did really like it. I really liked the show. So it was it was good fun to do. And, you know, it was weird writing for, it's quite a pressure with those kind of shows because the fan base knows the show so well that you have to be really careful with, you know, you have to have respect for the characters when you're writing them. But yeah, I, I did enjoy it. I wouldn't do it again. You know, I wouldn't, I know a lot of people do times on the side, but it's not my, it's not my cup of tea. I'm not really a fan, fandom person. You know, I'd rather write original stuff. <laughs> the idea of, of playing with someone else's characters and fucking it up is just too stressful. Oh, God. <laughs> well, it is. And also, it's invariably, it used to be. I remember a friend of mine, when he did his first Doctor Who novel, they still paid royalties on them. So it was financially quite lucrative. And then they stopped paying the royalties. But so they must have made a packet because they would pay like a flat fee, maybe 10 grand or something. And I don't know what the flat fee was. I'm just picking a number out of the thin air. But it wouldn't have been much more than that. And then they kept all the royalties. So it wasn't even like you were playing in someone else's sandpit and getting hugely rewarded for it. You know, like Mm. you would, if you wrote a TV episode, obviously that would be great. And that's, you know, massive, massively sort of kudos laden, you know. Um, But, but yeah, no, not in the, I wouldn't do tie-ins. Not for me. Some people have a natural knack for it, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to do it anymore. But although obviously, if my career falls apart and that's the only thing I've got an offer, I shall definitely be out there with my bed. <laughs> I have to relate a convention story that I, I heard. I forget mm-hmm. who the writer was now. My brain says Kim Newman, but that can't possibly be right. But it was someone who was saying that they were asked to write the um, book of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, the novelization of the film. Mm. Um, and it was back in the time as you were saying when they paid royalties and they were just like yeah. Yeah, it's fine we just need it out quickly and he signed up to this this contract and in between them signing him up and him writing the book Kevin Costner won um, the Oscar for Dances with Wolves oh making Robin Hood so popular that this guy managed to pay off his house and his mortgage and get an extra house on the back of writing Do you know what I wouldn't mis- get an extra house yeah, so he paid off his mortgage and got, you know, enough money to put a deposit on another one, you know, like a family home kind of thing. I wouldn't be surprised if that was Kim Newman. Because <laughs> he's it got does. a place on Upper Street. <laughs> Do you know what? I'm literally Googling Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves tie-in. Because that, um, <laughs> that see, that would be the good old days of tie-in. It wasn't like that when we were doing well, exactly. And that's what he was saying, that, you know, from now on it was a flat fee, but he just got lucky and they didn't really care because they thought it was going to be a huge flop. And then Costner won. Simon Green. 
That was it. That was it. Yeah. You must have been on a panel with Kim Newman. It was back in the yeah. days of fancy con when they were in basements and things. <laughs> yeah, 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 I remember. I remember. Um, yeah, I think that was a whole different world back then. We were talking about characters um, and sort of messing around with them and, and things like that. And, and I had to ask a, a little question that comes up as a horror writer, and it, it's a little obscure. So you're obviously good friends with um, the excellent Tim Levin, whose um, novel The Silence is now an, an amazing film. Yeah. Um, but he wrote a book called The Hunt, which I really enjoyed, and he yeah. named a character after you. <laughs> yeah. It, it was a football player. Um, I think I died, didn't I? You did. I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> bastard <laughs> <laughs> but it was really strange because I, I loved Tim's work and I was reading this book and of course I knew you as well and I read this name and I was like whoa and it really jolted would be quite jarring I mean I know yeah. that but I had Tim I had a it wasn't a Tim Leban but I had a Leban in my new tricks ah well that's not yeah. so bad when it's TV because what I was going to ask is you've obviously answered my question of whether real life references draw the reader out of the stories but I wondered if you were more tempted to do it if your readers might not know about the work of your friends or might not necessarily have seen them because obviously people aren't necessarily going to associate Sarah Pimber with Tim Levin these yeah. days obviously no, in the old days. Um, no because also I think if, if my readers haven't heard of a particular author they're not going to know that that name is an author they're just going to think it's a character name. You slip them in there then that people don't notice or well, I mean, I think I, I don't do it so much. I, I do it if it's um, a name that's generic. Um, but I know Kim Newman had me in one of his Drea Cliff. I think I was like a schoolgirl in one of his Drea Cliff, I can never say it, Grange novels. But I think my name is quite unusual. So I think it does throw people out a little bit. Oh, come on, lots of people called Sarah. <laughs> yeah, Sarah's fine. <laughs> I mean, I, I've, I've, I, I do use people's names, but I think we've all done it. I think I've done it much more in the past than I do now. Um, I tend to nicknames off Facebook. And also, I do a lot of charity auctions for character names. So most of my names are now people who've paid. Have you put Ted in any of your books? No. <laughs> no, not yet. Not yet. I think people keep telling me I should write children's books. The Adventures of Ted. Little Romanian Ted. Um, but no, no, I haven't yet. We should explain that to any listeners who haven't um, seen Sarah's Twitter account. Ted is her adorable little dog. Ted is um, Ted is the most is uh, much more famous than me. <laughs> He's very photogenic. <laughs> we want to ask you a little bit about you know, female characters because we are obviously uh, a podcast about women. Um, mm -hmm. So you write about truly deadly women. Do you think that we're finally moving away from the over-sexualized femme fatale who has been popular in like noir and crime fiction? Or is that still very much a part of female characters within sort of crime and thrillers? I don't, I don't think it's been a part of them for a long time, actually. Women, female, there's so many female writers doing so well in crime and thriller um, that, that, that I think that's been gone a long time. You know, I think it's. I think it'd be nice to move away from the dead hooker on page two, and fridging and that kind of stuff. But uh, no, I think I think female. You know, I think it's very much um, the ear. I think the psychological thrillers have changed things. You know, like I think from. You know, I. I mean, I know they were they were being published before Gone Girl, but Gone Girl changed that landscape, and suddenly there were a lot more of those kind of 
domestic noir, um, ordinary women having bad things happen or having to, you know, do bad things have come to the fore. So I think, you know, they're still sexy women, but um, I think they're much more rounded characters, perhaps, uh, than they used to be. But I think it's been it's been a while now since it's been that kind of femme fatale stuff. Have you ever read, um, I think it's How to Be a Good Wife? Yeah. Emma Chapman. No. Because that's, uh, yeah, Emma did my master's with me, my, my creative writing master's and How to Be a Good Wife. Um, I think it's Picador. Um, it's, it came out a few years ago now. Um, but yeah, just exactly what you were saying. It's that kind of, it's, it's a, it is psychological. It's a psychological thriller, um, mm. but domestic psychological thriller. Yeah. So she's a housewife effectively yeah. and um you know i want to give anything away because it's a really fantastic book but it's incredibly um yeah the whole the way the story is told is through a kind of like um the lens of her life and her and, every, and ordinary the ordinary tasks that she does and it kind of like she's very it's very very clever how it kind of unfolds and you realize that actually you know something really terrible has happened to her um mm. and she might not really be the kind of persona that she is and it's, yeah. it's done really well and I think that that kind of um fiction is the complete opposite of the femme fatale and this kind of yeah, incredibly I'm, 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 melodramatic female character that's larger most, than life the original kind of well not the original but for me that one of the the best examples of sort of the domestic noir psychological thriller is Rebecca you know and that oh god yes so old now but that was kind of the precursor of gone girl the precursor of girl on the train that you know the unreliable narrator that all of that stuff is in there um so yeah i do think that the femme fatale is quite dead in the water i think it might still have the odd place in a spy thriller or whatever but no i mean most most thrillers that i get sent and i get sent a lot are ordinary women thrillers you know like there's extraordinary women looking like ordinary women you know it'll be a housewife or a you know a nanny or whatever but I, you know that kind of femme fatale thing is do you think that that's diff- very different in terms of when it's a, a main male protagonist then are we still seeing the kind of t- the more you know the men being detectives or or kind of professionals where the women are you know that more the more ordinary kind of women or um, because most of publishing I mean I know like the top jobs in publishing are still nearly all male but most editors and publicists and marketing are are very much a female-led force so even in I mean I read um Simon Koenig's last one and it was very much a sort of pacey chase thriller which traditionally would have had a male protagonist but he had a female protagonist so I think um there's much more I think male writers have become much more aware that women want to read about women. You know, it's great to have, you know, those, those very sort of Lee Childy high action male, male protagonist thrillers, you know, there's still a massive place for them in the world. But I think there's more awareness that women can be tough too. And women can, can be as devious and deceptive and all that stuff. Um, so I think even male writers are starting to, even male writers that sounds so patronizing but you know i think men are, are taking female characters you know more seriously as as well as as women take them more seriously you say the books that you're sent i'm presuming this is to give cover quotes or something it's not just yeah. people randomly send you books and say no it, it is for doing cover quotes and blurbs and i actually did put a stop on it uh god about a year ago when my dad was really ill 
Uh, but I still get them. But now they tend to ask, like they'll email Veronique or Tasha and say, this has come in. Do you want to read it? So I've just got uh, the new Sarah Lotts book, which I'm obviously really looking forward to reading because I'm a big fan of hers. Um, but as a rule now, I just, and also you can get really bogged down and it feels like work. You can actually become quite panicky about, I've got all these books, I've got all these books, and I've got to, you know. But I think because I didn't come up with the sort of the big deal and all that stuff early on, I'm very aware of how important it can be, even just for morale, to get a quote from someone, you know, to have someone say on Twitter, oh, my God, I read this book, it was great. You know, it can be really just, you know, I used to love it if someone, I remember Ian Rankin coming up to me at the bar at Harrogate and saying, oh, Sarah, The Language Dying, it's an amazing book. And then just walked away and I was there going, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like it was just such a nice moment because I wasn't having that kind of great career or whatever at the time. It was just like plugging along. And so, you know, when I do get debut novelist books in, I do try and read them. All right. Well, thank you so much for talking to us, Sarah. It's been great. Thank you for having me.